We're continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel, and we've now got to the beginning of chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and Jane will read the passage for us. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This passage has so many points in it that it would be difficult to do it justice in a two-hour sermon, let alone one that lasts just ten minutes. For example, we see that the presence of Jesus flushes out the devil. For most of the Old Testament, the devil is behind the scenes, but today's passage makes it absolutely clear. Firstly, that the devil exists, and secondly, that one of his aims is to entice people into worshipping him and not worshipping God. And the passage also gives us some insights into how the devil operates. For example, he knows the scriptures and is prepared to misapply them in any way that suits his purposes. And unlike Adam, who fell for the enticements of the devil, Jesus resists the devil and does not sin. Which means that when Jesus died on the cross, he was without sin, so that his death could pay the penalty for our sins. Obviously, if Jesus himself had been guilty of sin, he would simply be paying the penalty for his own sin and could not have paid the penalty for my rebellion against God. And lastly, by rising to life again, Jesus proves that he has defeated once and for all the devil, sin and death. But the point that I want to concentrate on in this talk is found at the very beginning of today's passage. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The passage we looked at last week saw Jesus being baptised by John the Baptist, and as he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came upon him. If I had been Jesus at that time, I think I would have concluded that I had been fully commissioned and was therefore ready to go and start the work that God had wanted me to do. But before he starts to preach or do any of the works of God, Jesus withdraws and fasts. And this is not any fast, it's 40 days, which I gather is about as long as most humans can go without eating food. I'm driven to conclude that Jesus regarded fasting as an essential prerequisite to his ministry on earth. Today, the church in this country and also in most of Europe seems to have forgotten about fasting as a regular spiritual discipline. However, this was certainly not the case in years gone by. 
In the 18th century, John Wesley would not allow anybody to be a church leader who did not fast at least twice a week. But it seems to me that for the last 75 years, the church in this country has regarded fasting as something of an optional extra. Practiced by a few rather aesthetic Christians, and perhaps paid lip service to by the rest of us when we give up chocolate or alcohol during Lent. But over the last few years, I've been challenged that a dynamic church should include regular fasting as part of its normal behaviour. And I was interested that the beginning of November, the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, together with the Bishop of London, wrote a letter to the churches which included the following. They wrote... During this second lockdown, we invite you to fast in a way appropriate to you as well as pray for our nation every Thursday, for its leaders, its health and essential services and all those who suffer. So what then is fasting? Whilst you can give up other things, biblical fasting is first and foremost giving up all food for a specified period, often for a day but sometimes for a longer period. Now clearly there are some Christians who for medical reasons should not fast, but I venture to suggest that most Christians in Bristol could readily fast for one day a week. So the next question is whether, in addition to today's passage, there are other references in the Bible to fasting. Well, to begin with, in the Old Testament there are many references to people fasting. For example, the Israelites fasted on numerous occasions and particularly when they knew they had sinned and failed God. Esther fasted for three days before going to King Xerxes to plead for the life of the Jews. The people of Nineveh fasted in response to Jonah telling them that the city would be overturned. Coming to the New Testament, Jesus was once asked why his disciples weren't fasting. His response was that his disciples wouldn't fast whilst he, Jesus, was on earth, but that when he was taken away, then they would certainly fast. And indeed, that is what we see in the Acts of the Apostles. For example, just before Barnabas and Paul set off on their first missionary journey, we are told that after the disciples had fasted and prayed, They placed their hands on Barnabas and Paul and sent them off. And later we are told that when they appointed elders for each newly established church, they committed those elders to the Lord with prayer and fasting. So fasting is giving up food for a day or possibly more, and the practice is thoroughly rooted in both the Old and New Testaments. But why should we fast? Well, I think that can be answered on a number of different levels. To begin with, you are not going to lose your salvation if you don't fast. On the other hand, when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, he did say, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Not if you do these things, but when you do them. So Jesus obviously presumed that fasting would be as much a part of normal Christian discipleship as praying or financial giving. So one answer to the question, why should we fast, is that we fast as a matter of obedience. 
But I don't think that is the only answer. For example, I think there is some evidence from the Bible that fasting, like prayer, is a spiritual weapon in its own right. Furthermore, it is clear from the Bible that the people who God can use the most are the humble, because God can give the humble great blessings and trust that they will use them not for themselves, but for God's purposes. In our parish stand George Muller's orphanages. George Muller never asked for money because he believed that if he was doing God's work, God would provide the funds. And God did indeed provide George Muller with vast sums of money, probably because God knew that a humble man like George Muller could be trusted to spend the money on the orphanages and not to spend it on himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not find being humble comes very naturally to me. Indeed, I had a friend once who teased me and said that I really ought to write a book entitled Humility and How I Achieved It. And this friend then added that it would probably need to be more than one volume as I had so much to be humble about. To be more serious, the act of fasting is a first step in humbling ourselves before God. King David wrote in Psalm 35 that he humbled himself by fasting. When you fast, you're saying in a very physical, tangible way, God, I need to eat to live, but I want to make the point that you are more important to me even than food. As Jesus pointed out to the devil in today's passage, when you are fasting, you are effectively saying, I do not live by bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it seems to me that as we humble ourselves, we learn to give up our own agendas and make ourselves more available, more open to being used by God. So if you've never fasted before, how might you get to a position where you are regularly fasting for a day a week? Well, like most things in the Christian life, you start by taking small steps. To begin with, determine a day when you are going to fast. The archbishops in their letter have suggested Thursday, so the examples I'm now going to give are based on Thursday being your fast day. The first step would be to miss out lunch on Thursdays. Once you know that you can do that, the next stage would be to miss out breakfast and lunch on Thursdays. Now, what I found was that the next step after that is not going without food on Thursdays altogether, but rather not to have the evening meal on Wednesday. This means that when you wake up on Thursday, you know that you're looking forward to having food in the evening, so it's actually not very different from missing out breakfast and lunch. And you will already have learnt how to do that from previous fast days. On the other hand, when you actually get to Thursday evening, you will have gone without food for 24 hours and begin to know that that is a period of time that you can manage. Then the final step is to reinstate the evening meal on Wednesday and go to eating nothing on Thursday, no breakfast, lunch or evening meal. And if you're like me, you will also find that Friday then starts not with a cup of coffee and a bowl of muesli, but with a full cooked English breakfast. Now, two points. Firstly, whilst you're not eating, make sure you're still drinking plenty of water. And secondly, don't expect spiritual feelings on a fast day. 
If somebody tells you that on your fast day you will feel closer to God and spiritually uplifted, they either have never fasted themselves or they are definitely in the super spiritual league. For my part, on the fast day itself, the only feeling I generally have is feeling hungry. So, in summary, firstly, fasting is well established in both the Old and New Testaments. Secondly, Jesus obviously considered that Christians would fast, and he himself started his own ministry with a 40-day fast. Thirdly, there are many reasons for fasting, but one is so that we humble ourselves before God, saying to him not merely by words, but also by our actions, Lord, I need you.